Hello and welcome to the Film Comet Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital producer. This week, we have a special edition of the podcast recorded at True False, probably the nation's preeminent festival devoted to nonfiction film. The Columbia, Missouri Festival curates the best documentaries from around the world, including highlights from Sundance. This year, Film Comet editor Nicholas Rapold headed out to the festival with a live late-night recording of the podcast. He discusses the standouts with Film Comet contributors Jordan Cronk, Aliza Ma, and Ella Bittencourt. They're joined by Siobhan Mizrahi, the director of Distant Constellation, a portrait of an Istanbul old folks home, and Sampat Chidgazsorn Pongse, who worked with the Pichapongwer Sethakul and made railway sleepers, a journey through the Thai train system. Please note that the podcast was recorded live at the festival's traditional closing night spot, an after-hours waffle bar, so you'll hear some revelry in the background. So we've all been watching movie after movie until our eyes bleed. I, you know, now's a good chance for us to kind of talk about the movies that we really enjoyed. So I'm kind of envisioning this a bit like the movie They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Which is that we're just gonna kind of keep on going until we drop. But we'll have to start somewhere. And we kind of were just talking about the wonderful retrospective that they had here, which we were all very, very, very pleased to see the films in, uh, from Claire Simone, who I believe is somewhere in the audience. Is she now? She was. She was, was, but she fled. She's over there, okay. Well, so it'd be a lovely, we can talk about her films and maybe at some point she can can come up. Um, But I, these were just, I had only, only seen The Graduation before um, and that's a movie about La Femme. La Femis. La Femis, uh, which is a basically film school in Paris, the preeminent and tradition-bound and very respected. And it's a marvelous, marvelous film about filmmaking and about gatekeepers and about aesthetics and about class. But for me, the big, the big revelation was uh, Recreation. Yeah, it's, a, it's an incredible film she made at her daughter's grade school, kindergarten, actually. And she went to the school and realized that um, there was this whole microcosm happening in the playground between all the kids who had devised their own sort of power system. And she became so enthralled by the drama that was unfolding there during recess time that she went back every day with a high eight camera and film them. And she films all the kids at their eye level and so it becomes very immersive. So you feel this incredible intimacy to the subject, but at the same time, there's this very subtle observational style. It just sucks you right in. I mean, it's the most entertaining thing I've seen in a long time. Yeah, I mean, I also love that the takes are so long. Like, I think the opening one or one of the very first ones, it just seems like it must go on for about five minutes. Um, so you really see the dynamics between like individual kids playing out. It's, it's really kind of stunning. And because they're kids, all their psychology and their emotions are right at the surface. So there's nothing really too hidden. It's like, oh, you've got control issues or, you know, it's just, so you just immediately see these kids and they're not hiding anything and they're so vulnerable and raw it was like the most heart-wrenching thing I saw here, probably. One thing that really struck me was how the kids invent these games 
uh, to sort of practice real life emotions. And then once the game starts, it starts getting really real. Like you see the kids like play fighting and then it escalates. And because she gives the kids that room and that shot, that room to develop, it suddenly turns into a real fight. <laughs> And it just becomes incredibly violent. But yeah, it just encompasses all these different human emotions in this incredibly tiny world of the playground. You see elements of class and race coming into all these different aspects of their games, which I find very fascinating. 54 minutes, you see like the yeah. entirety of like human existence literally in their playground. It's like a series of iterations on the, the 2001 cut from, from the stick to the spaceship. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Sticks, totally. One thing that Claire told me uh, during the Q&A that I had no idea about was that because the playground had so much extra noise and because I guess at some point it was going to show at, on TV in France, she had to redo the soundtrack and the way that she did it because it was so analog back, back then was she got rid of the sound and, and had every kid come in and dub in their own voice exactly the way that they had said it. And she said that aspect took even longer than the filming process itself. That reminds me of all these sleepless nights did the same thing, right? So it's... I think it makes an interesting companion piece to graduation also. You know, you have one microcosm on, on the one hand and another one that's unfolding within the span of a much shorter period of time, but, um, you know, and in a, in a different stratosphere of, of life. But, yeah, the two make a really interesting pair. I, I also like that they're all wearing, like, early 90s, you know, sort of French parachute pants and jackets. Oh, everyone yeah. looks great. Yeah. <laughs> There's one kid wearing, like, a tiny trench coat. <laughs> yeah. It, it makes them look even more like they're just little people. Exactly. You know, just... And they acknowledge the camera on multiple occasions, which I appreciate. Or it, it lends a different dimension to the film. Yeah, that, that, that takes it into Michael Haneke. Exactly. Territory. <laughs> no, it's great. I mean, if you ever wondered what the economy would be like if it was all based on sticks, it's, that's, it's, a, it's a nice little thought experiment. And then Mimi, which screened today, is also terrific. Yeah, for some reason I started thinking about Before Sunrise, you know, because you're basically just following her through the city and she's walking and things are triggering her memories and you're just very much, you know, um, you have a, like a relationship with her and you imagine all her relationships as it's unfolding. And the way the movie deals with time and compresses time and dilates time is also um, really beautiful. Um, and yeah, because it was shot over... 30-something days or something. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, appears as though it's over a single day where she gives a tour of all her, all her usual haunts. But uh, what, what struck me was, well, this is the, the only 35-millimeter print playing in the festival, and the light and the colors were so astonishing. And it's a film that appears to have such a high polish to it, but I think it was just her. Um, I, I mean, by her, I mean Claire, behind the camera. So... That's amazing. Yeah, yeah I, uh, I only saw Mimi because I got here late, so I guess I'll comment on that. I mean, I, I, I really love the film, and 
And at first, when it started with the memories of the parents, right, um, I thought that because essentially we have the central character who's this person who's a friend of Claire's who's taking us um, at first around Nice, right, and each part of the city kind of unpacks an emotion and a memory. And at first I thought it would just stay in the realm of the memories of World War II, which kind of like in this very Z-Ball fashion, which would have been wonderful in itself. But then the film is just so free in how it moves from one thing to another. And it's really about all these pockets of this person who not only lives in her memories, but like lives in it scene by scene, and that, that this is really like a movie. We all embellish our memories right. to some extent. And that too, and that too. Um, incredible film, yeah. Strong Island Strong is Island. a film that has certain rhymes with, with what you guys were just talking about in terms of a, being a self-interrogative portrait of personal history and also national history and the sort of exposing and obfuscating of herself as the protagonist of this, uh, of this uh, story. And of course, it's about the, the murder of her, the filmmaker Yancey Ford's uh, brother, older brother, which never went to court um, as a murder case because of the grand jury's decision to uh, dismiss it as a case of self-defense. After, after her brother passes away, uh, a couple of years after her father passes away, but it's a story that sort of, basically the, the disappearance of her brother and her trying to excavate everything that happened over 10 years ago around his murder. His absence is a sort of, um, structuring absence uh, to the entire film. And I, I, I really thought that it was a very artfully and delicately made family portrait. On a different note, I guess there's no, um, there's no immediate tie-in, but the, the two films that, um, that I saw here and that have stayed with me, Quest and Railway Sleepers, um, and both in the case of Quest and Railway Sleepers, I, I found that very um, satisfying to see films where filmmakers have spent so much time working uh, on the material. I mean, in, in the case of Quest, the story of African-American family in Philadelphia and that's being followed for over 10 years. And in the case of Railway Sleepers um, by a young filmmaker, I think eight years total of just following every Thai train line and filming passengers on those lines for hours and hours. And the approaches in both films, are, uh, in the two films, are very different, of course. I mean, in, in Quest, there's a very clear narrative arc. Uh, there's, a, there's a construction of, there's almost like a fictional construction of a character, even though it's observational documentary. Um, and, and then Railway Sleepers, we're not focused on persons, really. I mean, it's, you know, the idea is that we're just kind of taking in this environment and the landscape and the magic of travel as a whole. But both of them, I mean, just this idea of having all this footage and, and having such seamless editing and really fun angling down into a story, um, that, that, really, um, that really stayed with me. Yeah.
No, railway sleepers is amazing. It's yeah, it's like some it's almost like some train trip through like the country's past as well and 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 the present and it's constantly like toggling between the different passengers like mental states. So like some people are very much in the moment, some people are just out of it the way you are in a train. Some people are in like the eternal present of routine like the people working in the kitchen who are chopping. And then at the end, I mean he does he does this really strange move and great move with like these two people who are talking about the history of the train line. But then I wasn't mishearing that, right? One of them talks about like World War One. No, you were not. I mean, he, right? So yeah, because one of the one, I mean, one, the the person, and he's he's um, that part is totally scripted. He said, obviously, it's almost like a ghost figure that that is being interviewed because this man is talking about back then. He kept saying back then, but then we realized that back then is like the commencement of this line in 1893 or something like that, and back then is during the period of First World War, and obviously the events that the actual person we're seeing on screen could not have lived through. So he's like kind of the incarnation. And it was very nice because uh, the, the filmmaker um, uh, shared with us that he, he struggled with the ending. I mean, like he really wanted to, he didn't want, because it feels like it could be an eternal journey. And at first he thought this film would be longer. And it could be longer. I mean, some people thought, oh, this could be like a Chris Marker, you know, 24-hour loop kind of thing. But he didn't want that sense that, like, well, and then it just ends. I mean, he, so, so I, I, I really love the ending because it's like a way of, of opening up and amplifying what he has already done and bringing it back to kind of also where he started at the beginning with the history, with this vision of the country, which when the images kind of deliver and complicate, right? Because, because obviously the progress is there with the air conditioning in the first class, but maybe not so much. And the completely packed and stifling, you know, cars of, of the lower, for the lower class passengers. Yeah. AD or what? I think, yeah, I think you're right. They, yeah. they collaborate. collaborate. Plays into the ghost story at the end. Yeah, I like that kind of a connection there. There's a little phantom uh, connection. Yeah. And then I thought about, I guess, I also thought a little bit about the, um, I mean, it's a hugely different film, but Maisel's, his like last co-credited movie was an Amtrak one. Very different movie, but it's just... I mean, because that's so familiar, it doesn't seem... It's interesting to think about that movie and, like, impose that kind of, like, dream journey on it. I guess because Amtrak's so familiar, it doesn't... But, but I mean, it, you know, maybe someone could do a movie like that about the, the ghost Northeast Corridor. And, and, and really, uh, to be able to tease out that much humor and drama out of these very mundane moments, I mean, it's a special talent, and I think it's... You know, it's very encouraging to see a young filmmaker who takes this eight-year leap uh, of making a movie. I mean, really, great one. I kind of wonder if we should... What if we got a filmmaker up here, put him on the hot seat? Uh, I can't really... Can we t have you guys seen Distant Constellations? I have. I, I oh, like yeah, did, you want to talk about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah let's talk about that first. Uh, sure, yeah. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> no, I love Distant Constellations. Yeah, yeah, that's, I think, you know, like, Tied with Graduation is my favorite film at the festival because yeah. um, 
I mean, just the, the amount of life that's contained within such a limited uh, span of time, it's just, that's real economy of filmmaking there. And Distant Constellation it takes place in um, Istanbul, in an old people's home, which is surrounded by um, huge Ballardian uh, uh, real estate development. And it's sort of this like valley in between all of this construction. And already that's a very surreal kind of setting. But inside the home, you're introduced to these incredible characters, all of whom, you know, have formed a sort of ecosystem of um, survival. I mean, they, they really uh, have a, their own strange rituals in the home. And the film uh, turns that into sort of the most captivating drama, you know, to, it felt almost like a weird soap opera sometimes. Like, you just wanted to keep watching these characters. Yeah, no, and, and she kind of encourages the that, that episodic feel with these, like, recurring bits in the elevator. Yeah. Which the I, elevator scenes are amazing. Because the there are these two um, residents in, in the old folks' home who, just for their hobby, instead of, like, I guess maybe they used to go on joy rides and, and racing cars, like, sports cars, but now they just together go in the elevator and ride it up and down from stop to stop. I kind of feel like that might be what I would end up doing <laughs> yeah. if I was old folks home. So yeah, they have that kind of comic bumper to it. Beyond um, what you guys just talked about, from a formal standpoint, I mean, there's compositions in the film that are incredible. Like, yes. Uh, it looks like Pedro Costa, like Albert Serra thing, like it's very formally controlled and very precise and like a beautiful film especially when it moves like the second half it kind of moves out into the construction on the outside of the, the building the construction of the building and it looks incredible yeah and, and that kind of juxtaposition also kind of is Costa like a bit yes just exactly like, yeah the way that or Ja like still life I was thinking of like it, yeah. there's a lot of things in the, the film that are yeah the way it's kind of it's kind of gets folded into your experience of, I mean, relatively straightforward scenes with, with the residents of the old folks' home, you're suddenly like, you take this like, knight's chess piece move to the <laughs> construction site and then somehow come back, and you're like, how is this connected exactly? But it somehow it makes total sense. I don't know. Yeah, it starts to come sure. together more at the end when you start to get to know the construction workers yes. more at the end, yeah. and then you start to see the connections between the two, uh, you know, well, the age groups and also, you know, the types of laborers and whatnot. But, yeah, yeah. it's a really beautiful movie, I thought. It's, it's, it's very uh, lyrical, the way that you see the old people looking out at the construction sites when they're just sitting around, and they're, they're just looking at these workers' work, you know. And eventually the film takes you into the dormitories of the... Uh, the construction workers, and you get to learn a little bit about their lives as well. But the pacing of it is so measured, and every cut in that film is so meaningful. That, that really struck me. And it's crazy to go to the construction workers at the end, because now that you've seen like the end point of everyone's lives, now you can't help but look at these young workers and think, oh, you know, right. you're full of life now, but... <laughs> 50 years from now, you'll be flirting with a documentary filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs>
which it has to be one of my favorite scenes in, in the fest. Oh, that guy festivals. is amazing. He's amazing. He's the, yeah, Lothario <laughs> of the Istanbul old folks home. A scene that perhaps goes a tad uncomfortably long, <laughs> um, but I don't know. There are a couple of scenes with him. Uh, yeah. the, the French guy who uh, loves to talk about sex. He and, talks about uh, Lolita for a while at the beginning, right? Yeah, yeah, Lolita. He has some French postcards somewhere, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a director in the house? Is there a doctor in the house? Is there a director in the house? No, I think um, the filmmaker of this. Who's that? Oh, really? Is the director of Distant Constellation here? Would you like to join us on stage? Yay. This is so exciting. This is like in a dream where, or no, it's like that scene in Annie Hall where all of a yeah, sudden. Yeah, exactly. You know, Marsha McLuhan. Marsha McLuhan. Hello. Hello. So can you just introduce yourself so you're on the, on the record? My name is Siobhan Mizrahi, and I directed and um, shot and um, co-edited the film Distant Constellation. Which we were just admiring. Um, I, I hope we, were, we, we weren't embarrassing you by all our praise, but uh, well, we love it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess I, we, were, we were also, we were, we were talking a bit about the, um, the way you were juxtaposing like the construction scenes with the, the, old, the elderly home and I was wondering how you like, I don't know, we talked about Pedro Costa a little, just the way that kind of, the way you're folding those things inside each other. I mean, I don't know. Was that always part of the conception to kind of, to have a construction site be part of the? Yeah, I think in order to have the film, you needed a tension kind of, because um, there was no plot. And um, I wasn't really interested in plot anyway, even if there had been. So uh, that sort of created a point-counterpoint and um, also uh, allowed me to be more abstract in the form that I would always have. It was easy to cut away to that when needed, you know? Yeah. And My inclination is to turn this into an interview, so you guys got to stop me because I... <laughs> well, I, I, I'd love for Siobhan to talk about the, the actual location of the home to contextualize that a little bit for the listeners. Yeah, it's um, that that was my father's childhood neighborhood in Istanbul, like in every major city, whether it's Tel Aviv or New York or whatever, is uh, this rapid construction. And um, in in New York, when the construction happens, it's usually walled off. You know, you you have no idea it's going on until it's over, and then suddenly there's a new building. And to some extent, it's true in Turkey as well. But there, there were some cracks in the, in the facade, so uh, I could sneak a camera through and see kind of what was going on in there. Yeah, this massive open wound. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> yeah. have they? Are they done? Or what? What? Be, what is? What, what are they? I'm, is it a hotel or something they built? Or like an office building? Office building. And they had permitting problems, so the construction got delayed. But each time I went back to shoot, there was pretty much a new construction happening from a different angle. Oh, okay. So the rate of transformation was insane. Wow. And I also knew that that building, there's plans, it, it won't stick around forever. So one day I will go back and the whole, that itself will be gone. You mean the elderly home will be the gone? The home itself, oh. yeah. Well, this reminds me of a 1970s horror movie called Homebodies. Oh, yes. I thought of Homebodies, too, while I was watching. Oh, really? Have you seen it? <laughs> no, I haven't seen it. <laughs> 
It's sort of like the if the fictionalized version. It really is. It could actually be like a like a fictionalized sequel to your film. Oh. In that in homebodies, the old people in their home are faced with the malice of uh, developers. Developers, and uh, and they rebel. They actually rebel, and it turns into a horror film in which the old people are the killers. They torture and kill oh my everyone involved uh, in, in the development, housing development, uh, systematically. And it's, it's hilarious, but also super scary. Uh, I was looking for a good ending, so... Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and a lot of people here are playing with... A lot of the directors played with fiction and non-fiction in an interesting way that I, I hadn't completely been aware of, so... Yeah. Maybe well, I should push it a bit myself. Yeah. <laughs> stage I think of your murder. film is pretty... I know it was presented as a work in progress, but, I mean, I just thought it was really astonishing just the way it was presented. Ah, thank you so much. Thank you. It means a lot. Yeah. And, uh, and so what, what's left, that, what do you have to do on it now? Is like the, the sound or are you going to work with the uh, editorial structure at all or no? Um, we have a few structural changes we were exploring and I think um, how we weave in the construction workers is like a very delicate thing. Our intent was to kind of bring them in uh, gradually and, uh, and enhance their presence more and more. And at the end, we have a scene between two of the workers. One of them is like starting a family and um, the other is advising him of how to do well in the trade. So uh, certain people have felt like it, uh, their presence was too sudden and not earned and that there wasn't enough payoff from the dialogue with them and the amount of time you spend with them. So. I think that is just something we want to explore a little bit more of if we can de develop it better. And then the sound design, I feel, has been completely neglected. I shot the film, so I put a lot of attention into the visuals. I mean, that was my main focus all in editing and also, you know, while shooting. And I want to do the same thing with the soundscape, just to work with somebody who is has been in that field and has a developed sensibility in that way and can really uh, bring it to the next level. Yeah. There's this kind of motif of the wind. I yeah. like that. That was the temp sound. It's, it's uh, quite intense. I don't know. I like. I, just, I love that. You love that? It gets yeah. so subtle. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if subtle is the right word. But yes. Well, you're, just, you're just like cut and paste, cut and paste, wind, 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 wind. I, it's, it's an interesting... Um, the forces of nature, the moon and the... The wind and um, the cha the changes in the day, the passage of time, and then um, contrasted with the the work of man, the construction, and yeah, just how these two things compete with each other, and of course, nature always wins. Yeah. So. Well, that, I mean, that's what I was just saying before that that's what's great about one of the things that's great about the end when they're talking about careers and stuff. You're, you're, I'm sorry, you have to hear this again, but you, you're looking at all these young people and you've seen where they're headed, you know? Because the workers are like, they're all in their 20s, right? The construction workers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, so for the next piece, um, I already I started shooting the next project. Oh, but what's, what's that about? It will be uh, an exploration of the workers. I, I lived with them for many weeks, so um, they they go on treasure hunts in the in the night, and they dig for treasure. Like, is this a game, or they actually find stuff? They actually find stuff. Oh, cool. They um, dig up graves. Uh, okay. They um, <laughs> dig up uh, ancient sites and oh. get old relics and sell them on the black market. Wow. And uh, yeah, I think uh, it's, they also come to the work site from their villages and um, each department is from a different village. So like the electrical department all comes from the same town, their neighbors and sons and cousins. So it's a fascinating little yeah. um, ecosystem there. And yeah. uh, I, I think to look at sort of what their life is like and the, the juxtaposition in this case will be with um, the exterior of these glamorous buildings that they're constructing and what their lives are in relation to the, the, the creation. Wow, so, that sounds great. It's, 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 set, it's based on a similar premise as the, I mean, the, these two contrasting things and putting them side by side. So. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> that sounds good. Are you gonna you're gonna go back and shoot like in the summer or? Uh, I think I'm going back in three weeks. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and hopefully not gonna get in trouble because things there are quite crazy it, politically. Oh, oh right. Yes. yes. Of course. Yeah. So I'll be under the radar. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, did you get a chance to watch uh, other other films here or? I did, um, not too many, uh -huh. but uh, I saw um, Railway Sleepers. Oh. I don't know if you've had him up. I actually think it would be interesting to converse with him because- Sure, um, yeah, let's bring him up. We had a- So you want to just introduce yourself so you have it on the audio. Oh, okay. Um, my name is Sompot Chitke Sonpong. I'm the director of Railway Sleepers. Uh, oh yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, welcome. Uh, Thanks for coming up. Uh, thank um, you for having me. Yeah. Well, you have a big fan base right here. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I saw your film a few, uh, like in Berlin a month or two ago. You shot it on every railway in Thailand. Can you, can you talk about how that idea came about, about how you get to every... The original idea come from when I was studying at CalArts. Yeah, I didn't have a car. And um, that's this one day that I have to um, go to Los Angeles. And since I don't have a car, I took, have to took a train there. As the train started to move, I cried. And then that's when I realized that I must have felt really trapped. Because I live in the dorm and, you know, I just live in the, the campus mostly. And so I had this, um, a, a small camera with me, so I tried to capture that moment and tried to film outside the window. And when I was filming and there was this Mexican boy, he came into my frame. He's like right into my frame. He was also looking out the window. And then he started asking his father in question in Spanish. And I didn't really understand what they were saying, but, but I felt like I know that kind of question that kids would ask their parents when they travel. You know, like, are we there yet? What is this? What is that? Where are we going? Stuff like that. And I felt like, what well, is this so interesting? Like, maybe I can do this with like, family in, in, in Thailand or any family, you know, because we little kids traveling on train and see what kind of questions they would ask. I went back to Thailand during the break, uh, winter break or something, and then 
yeah, try to taste what, what, what would happen. And then I realized that, wow, there's many other interesting things happening on the train as well. Yeah. Not just the kids, but many, many other things. So, so that's when the film evolved a bit to become other things. But uh, the reason that I try to take all the train, every route in, in Thailand is because um, when I was studying abroad, I realized that I didn't actually travel much in Thailand at all. And maybe by making this film, it can force me, and it's like an excuse for me to travel the, the country. So you know, I use my film to, to force me to travel and, uh, like everywhere yeah, in Thailand. Your pacing of editing is really interesting, and um, there doesn't seem to be a logic to how long you stay on a shot, but, uh, but it, there's an emotional rhythm. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit on how you navigated that kind of we're sensitive to when to begin and end the moment. Really hard to explain because it's very um, subjective. And like you said, it's all about emotion, I think. Uh, sometimes it's about the action that, that dictates when I, I start or when I stop, but, but sometimes it's linger a bit because I feel like that moment happens when the action stops and after that a bit, you know, like maybe something, something more transcendental happens after that action. So, so it's really about like, Finding that emotion, like that, I don't know how to explain it. It's very, I don't want, I don't know if the word intuitive, intuition can yeah, work. Yeah, in yeah intuitive, yeah. yeah, definitely, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's more like, like that, yeah. Your theme is kind of like that. And I know for emotional editing, you kind of have to be in the right mood, and you're not always in the right mood. No, so does no. it, did it make it, did it mean that sometimes you would sit down to work and just not be able to do anything, or? Yeah, totally, and um, <laughs> because um, I would I would edit the film and for like a, maybe like a, like a five minute chunk, and then would stop, and then go have a break or something, and we come back to watch it again, you know, and because the film it has no story, it's just about these emotion of little shots come together. I have to. Um, it's important to watch it from the beginning actually to to see the the rhythm of it and how it flow. So I have to like, okay, five minutes time become 10 minutes chunk, and the 10 minutes time become 15 minutes chunk, and I have to take a break and watch it from beginning again, you know. But, but it's really tricky because I start to get used to it, and I, I know when it's gonna cut, so it's not fresh anymore. So I have to maybe like stop for two days and come back and watch it again, and okay, so, oh wow, this is too fast, this is too, and then I change it. So it's a long process of finding that right, right rhythm. Um, during the Q&A, you mentioned that um, you had all this footage and then for you to work on it, you actually created this, like, it sounded like a pretty elaborate storyboard, right? Yeah. Could, you, could you tell that, that part again? And, uh, yeah, because um, since it, the film doesn't follow anyone in particular, it's just snippets of life. And it's really hard for me to remember what that snippet happened, which tape, and uh, you know where is the footage. So I have my system is that I I capture the frame from all all the hours, all the every time I cut, I would just make a, a still image. Or if the shot is really long, I would make like three images from that shot, and I print it all out, and I have like four thousand little images. And what I did is like I storyboarding them, like, like physically. Yeah, I, I also like the, the few moments of when, um, when we don't know that the camera, that the point of view of the camera from which we're seeing is actually on a train. Like there's one moment when we're seeing a train, but then 
we don't expect it, but then the camera starts moving, which kind of is like the embodiment of, of motion that this film is about as well. Yeah, because, um, yeah, like you said, actually the whole film is shot on the train, but right, sometimes right. you, no, you I cannot know, tell. Like, right, sometimes yeah. we're externally, it's, sometimes we yeah. see the train from outside. So, and, right. and then the image starts to move, and you're, oh, you're still on the train, yeah. So I try to, because the whole film is shot on static shot, it does, the, I don't move the camera at all. So yeah, I, I try to, to play with that thing, like, because train is like, you, you're immobile, but you're actually mobile at the same time. And I, I try to play with the still shot, but at the same time, it's moving. And yeah, there's movement. And I, don't, I also don't want to move the camera too much because the train is already on the move. It will be too hectic, I think. Yeah, so I try to make it still and let, let whatever moves, move. There was an almost sci-fi element to the film, right? Which is, I felt like I was on a spaceship to the, to the moon or something, you know? And there was all the, the human life was just there on the train and I was with it and relating to every part of it. But then in the end, you changed that. Do you want to speak about the ending a little bit? You, you mean about the English guy? Yeah, putting it with this historical context. Yeah, because um, the, the film is mostly about observation of little moments in life, but during the, the shooting process, I've been doing a lot of research about Thai train history. And I found out that it's so important to the history of Thailand itself. And there's no way that I cannot include that in the film. I have to find a way to include that in the film because it's so important. I'm not sure if there's going to be another documentary about Thai train in, you know, later. So I, I feel like I have to somehow include this because, because it's important. But, but I didn't really know how because the film, I don't want to, to um, spoil the, the pureness of observational. So I, for a long while, I couldn't find a way to include that into the film until I found um, this diary of English engineer who actually worked from the very beginning. And then I was like, oh, wow, this is like a human element. The, the whole film is about human, and this is a human element that embodies history in, in himself. So maybe I can interview him or, or include him in the film, but since he's already dead, like many, many years ago, like hundreds of years ago, so I have to, to somehow construct him. Yeah, so he, he's um, the construction of the research that I've been making. And I, I, I wrote the script for him. If, if he's uh, like a real person, what, what would we, uh, he answer and what kind of question I would ask? I mean, yeah, the film shifts a bit because from observational, it becomes like a, more like a conventional documentary, like a talking head kind of thing. And then from very, um, very aloof kind of perspective because um, you don't see me in, in the film. It's more like a fly on the wall thing. You, you start to hear my voice and it becomes more personal. So I guess I want to play with that form of a, a documentary a bit, from observational to like very personal, and then from like a, um, experimental observational, it becomes like a, a, a talking head kind of, yeah. Then it shifts back in a lovely way to their bodies because he's like, do you, are you sleepy at all? Right, right. <laughs> I, w I would love if that happened in like in other documentaries where the voiceover guy suddenly says, I think I need to take a nap, you know? <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess because I want him to be a little bit more ambiguous. Maybe in the morning you realize that maybe that was a dream. Maybe he wasn't, he's just a, a normal person or normal passenger, but that you're not sure what he is and he like, yeah. And then yeah, it becomes like a more like observational style again. Like you, you shift it back. When the morning comes and the night becomes like 
that was weird and then right. you know, come back to... I think it's fascinating. You surprised me many times because uh, you'd have these beautiful shots of people, but then you'd just go to an empty space or a shot where not much is happening. And um, it, was, it was an interesting choice. I'm, again, I'm guessing that's one of those emotional decisions. Even with the, at the ending, the dialogue is over the close-ups in the room, not what I would expect. And maybe you can talk about what uh, led you to choose to cover the scene in that way. Yeah, because um, the whole film is in the, the third class train or the second class train. It's more like a, it's a, not a private space, it's a place that you share with other people. And once you get to the first class train, it's really the most private space in the train. And there's nothing you can shoot, so it becomes like an observation of like the structure of the room, you know. And then, and then once you go to that private space, then no one to talk to except this ghost person who's not real and myself. So you just, you, when you start to hear myself a lot, because once you go to that private moment, there's no one to talk to except yourself. And that's when you look at to yourself instead of looking at other people. So that's my idea. And also, um, the reason that you see a lot of like empty corridors is because, um, because the whole film, mostly you look at people and their activities or their little things. But, but also, I want to capture time. Like I want the audience to feel time, like for real, without not, no distraction. Because I want, because like I said, like 10 is about time. And, and that's the moment that they feel like, okay, it's night. And that's the moment you feel time the most because no, nothing going on. So that's why I keep it very long because I want, that's when I want to capture time, I think. Yeah, to feel the time passing. I'm wondering how your work with a pitchapong kind of influenced your approach to movie making and what kind of things you learned from from him. A lot, actually. Um, some people um, give me comment that the film actually remind me of uh, Mystery and Object at Noon in a way that is kind of explore the country as well. And I, I, I totally agree because I think I think when Richard Pong made that film right after he graduated from Chicago. Yeah, and um, I think I think when you when you study abroad and you when that's when you realize that you you kind of miss your home or there's um things that in your country that you want to explore and I think they have the same feeling, yeah. So maybe that's that's a similarity as well. And of and of course um something come come out naturally without me re realizing it, like um like the film syndromes and the uh not no uh, wait wait um symmetry of splendor that I actually work, work on as the first assistant director. And it's also explore about this um, sleep and also um, later political tension that hit then and you know, my film in a way try to explore that as well and the film is called Railway Sleepers which also <laughs> about sleeping as well and it's very in, in, in intentional. I didn't try to explore the same thing but my film is full of people sleeping and uh, Railway Sleeper is such a nice name because it's me in the the, the sleeper that support the rail and it has double meaning. It, it also means that like people who have hidden potential, you know, and but also like people who sleep and like uh, support of the rail. So it has so many meaning that kind of fits the film per perfectly. It fits this sci-fi quality for me of just sort of the way we're sleepwalking through the journey of life in a way. So that's what it made me think. Just like your film, you know, where you see um, the workers sleeping. To me, it's it's uh, resemble death. 
because the old man is like, you know, the, the old people will reach death at the same time and it looks like they're sleeping, but like, like the workers. Yeah, so in a way, my film is also like that, like, like life and death, birth, because before you go to the nighttime, you see this uh, father holding the baby and it's still like, okay, this is the beginning of something and then people sleep and then, yeah. It's... Did you have a, a favorite, favorite film that you saw here? Distant Constellation. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a oh, second. I, no, I have so many films because I saw like nine films already and I love them all actually. Oh. And I like how they are dif very different. It's really hard for me to, to tell which one I have. Well, I what was the most. most recent one you saw? Uh, I just saw a road movie. Which, the road uh, movie. The yeah. YouTube clip from the it's another Another it's very different kind of transportation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the catastrophe of transportation. I know, I know. It's, I like how it's, um, at first it seems like just the compilation of the, the accident, but after a while, when it's a lot of them, it becomes absurd. And it just transcends to something else. It's like a different rhyme of like absurdity, and then it becomes other things. I don't know how to explain it. but Very dreamlike uh, sequence in that one of the excerpted videos is through uh, this burning forest. Right. And um, the film suddenly transforms into like a like an actual hellscape. Um, and it's, I guess it's Russia in the wintertime, so there's snow on the ground, but the forest is burning and everything is molten red. And um, the dash cam is sort of blurred over, so the whole film looks kind of glazed over. And then the dialogue behind the cam is hilarious. Yeah. You know, you have this very visually poetic image. And then the guy's just like, oh, damn, my feet are burning like crazy. Right, right. Because I was staying, doing the Q&A as well, and Dimitri, the director, said very interesting thing about um, the, the, the function of the camera. Because when you film something, making a documentary or fiction film, when you start shooting, you realize that you want to capture that moment. But the way the camera in the car works, that it captures every, always. And, and you don't know when to capture, and you, you realize that it's already captured things when, when something interesting happen and it's like, oh, do we have a camera on or you know? But it's already captured everything. So I, I found that quite interesting how it works in a, an opposite way. Yeah. yeah. And, and then the, the passivity that that forces upon you. Like you're, right. you're locked into that view. No one shows it. Right, right. And because you don't know that, you didn't realize that the camera is there all the time, you become very natural by automatically. Yeah. Yes. It's like a, a very authentic moment in a way. Even like for a documentary, when the, uh, the sub subject realizes their camera in front of you, maybe they change their behavior a little right. bit. But at that time, I don't think people realize, especially during, during an accident, they're just, that, they're just themselves, like, authentically. Yeah, also, I don't want to live in Russia. Oh, no. <laughs> I know. I have to drive carefully after watching the film. I feel like I don't want to drive. Um, well, I guess that we're sort of a wrapping up now. We have to wrap up now. Well, I know. There's something very kind of beautiful about that. It's sort of serene. just it's, like It's sort of a metaphor for the kind of movies we're making anyway. <laughs> <laughs> like, we're just there making them and nobody's paying attention. Well, but, but, but this, gets, this gets recorded and it'll be distributed as a podcast, so it gets out there. So, so it is a perfect metaphor. This is the shooting. Yeah, and then. And then it'll be distributed, so. The podcast is like the festival. <laughs> the podcast is the festival, exactly. 
Well, thank you both so much for joining us, and thank you to all of our participants, and thank you to True Falls, uh, and thank you to all the technicians and Lowell, everyone, for setting things up. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. <laughs>